introduced us to Leviticus chapter 16, so if you have a Bible, please do keep that passage open in front of you. It's page 95 in the Pew Bibles. As Nick has read and as you've no doubt picked up, there's a a significant amount of detail that we're not going to be able to cover um, this evening, but I do trust that this uh, passage will lead to some real great thoughts and fruitful discussion, perhaps even afterwards, um, some of the bits that we're not going to get to cover. Um, But I wonder if you did notice, uh, when we started off the reading in chapter 16, the first verse uh, starts with what can only be described as some of the most solemn or heavy words to introduce a chapter. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. And so the incident that brings about the instruction of the Day of Atonement is that of sudden and instant death. The Lord speaks to Moses Uh, We're given the context here just after his two nephews, the eldest sons of the high priest Aaron, were consumed with fire in the temple or the tabernacle of the Lord. These were two boys, boys of privilege, two boys with great prospects, gone because they took God's holiness lightly and they acted flippantly before him in the tabernacle and they're gone. It's a very solemn, a very heavy way to set this chapter in context. But I think it is the frame that we must put around this day, this day of atonement. And I want to ask this question. What should God do about evil? That's a very big question. We all want a world that is free from evil and wickedness. A society of peace and harmony. Families of love. Yet daily we we see... Justice perverted, tenuous peace just about holding together. And I'm sure none of us have completely been able to avoid relationships that cause hurt or the wronging of others. And if we're honest enough with ourselves, we can ultimately trace back this this problem, this human problem of, of sin, of wickedness in to our own hearts, our own desires, our own behaviors. So what should God do about that? God is completely and utterly against evil and its destructive and polluting effects. That's the the big theme of this book of Leviticus, the key thrust. And that's a good thing, that God stands against sin and against wickedness. In In the same way, a good doctor or a good surgeon should have a zero tolerance approach to germs and contamination We don't want them contaminating us after being with another patient. They have to have a zero-tolerance approach to any potential contamination. So surely it is a good thing that God is set against evil, injustice, unfairness, and all of its damaging effects. But how should or how can he get rid of it? If at some level, that evil, that problem finds its root in every single one of our hearts. Is the solution what we saw happen in the first verse to Aaron's sons? Just erase the problem? Or maybe 
can God destroy sin? Can God deal with sin but yet spare sinners? Is that what he wants to do? Can he do that? Is there an alternative to what happened to these boys? Has God got a plan that allows us to be with him but yet not consumed with his holiness and with, by his righteousness and his indignation, his hatred for the sin and wickedness that has infected us all? Well, the, the day of atonement, the day of atonement is that good news, that good news that there is a way a way in which our sin can be forgiven, a way in which the polluting effects of it can be cleansed, that we, flesh and blood, weak and sinful, can be rescued, and that God's righteousness and his holiness can be satisfied so that he can be pleased even to dwell with us without us being destroyed. And that is very good news for me. It's very good news for you, and it is amazing news for Belfast this evening. So with this very sad, very abrupt, very solemn context, this festival day that Nick has introduced for us was instituted three and a half thousand years ago, and it gives us this this key, it holds the key to this question, how God desires to remove and erase sin yet without removing and erasing sinners. The instructions come here in chapter 16, which is the the central hinge point of the book of Leviticus. And of course, Leviticus is the central book in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And the the centralness, the the importance of this day is reinforced so much so that It became known down through the ages by the Jewish people as just the day. And of course that makes sense because as we've read, it's going to involve the most significant person in the nation, in the most significant place, on the most significant day, carrying out the most significant ritual. Practically it was the the second event in the autumn after the Feast of Trumpets, the people did no work. They were expected to fast, and it was to be a time of self-examination, of mourning, of confession, considering sin. Now, this evening, I just want us to, to, to zoom in and look at what was particularly unique in the sacrifices that were made that day. Nick has introduced it to us, the, the, the sin offering that required the taking of two male goats. That's an offering that, that wasn't given anywhere else in Leviticus and was kept only for this day. And, and, and Aaron, that the high priest, and the high priests that would come after him have, were instructed by God in Leviticus chapter 16 to take these two goats and to cast lots, one of them for the Lord to be slaughtered. The other to be literally, the, the word literally translated as the goat of removal, or the goat that goes away. And that's why William Tyndale in the 16th century coined the English term scapegoat. So why these two goats, and how does it answer our question? Well, firstly, I want us to think of the goat that was uh, slaughtered for the Lord as the way of atonement, and the second goat 
the goat, the scapegoat, as the result of atonement. Initially, the high priest here, Aaron, is instructed to enter the most holy place with the blood of a bull. That was the standard sin offering for a priest to make. He's to come into the the, the tabernacle and then on into the holiest of holies with the blood of the bull for himself and for his house. With that, he was also to bring hot coals and incense to create a cloud that would shield him from seeing the Lord on the ark. And once these preparations were made, then he was to come back out and to take this goat that was chosen by Lot to be dedicated to the Lord, to slaughter it and to capture its blood in a basin. And so he comes through the first veil into the holy place, through the second veil into the holiest of all, representing the the whole nation. And in a sense, a lone figure representing all mankind before the holy throne of God. Let's remember what's in this central uh, chamber. We have the ark. And in the ark housed housed the, the, the law of God carved in stone, reminding us of God's holy standard. It also housed the the the, the uh, pot of manna and Aaron's rod that budded. All three of those different objects taken from different times in Israel's history of uh, times when they fell in rebellion and turned against God. Speaking to their sin and their rebellion. And here he stands. Yet over the top of the ark, God had in his mercy provided a covering, a slab of gold that Nick has introduced to us with the two sculpted cherubim. And here stands this man, dressed in nothing but linen, holding nothing but a basin of blood. And on and before this lid, as it covers over those symbols of our rebellion, of of sin and, and shortcomings before God, he sprinkles this blood on and before the mercy seat. It seems so little, but in that act, it's so significant. The Lord says in doing that, he makes atonement. As that blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat, it indicates that sin has been dealt with by a substitutionary sacrifice. It covers over, it covers over the the sin and the rebellion and the defilement of the people. And God was satisfied. Our ESV translation here calls it a mercy seat, which is quite right, isn't it? The NIV also helpfully calls it an atonement cover because as it stands there over the top of those symbols of rebellion, that blood-stained cover made an atonement. The symbolism is stark, you know. If you you remember back to Genesis chapter 3, mankind was put out of that harmonious relationship with God in the Garden of Eden. We were put out to the east and there stood at the entrance to the Garden of Eden, a fiery sword and cherubim to guard the way back into God's holy presence. But here, now, God 
has made a pathway back for mankind. It's very significant that the, the priest, the high priest, had to move from east back to west, coming through the veil with this blood, and there over the ark, the cherubim again, symbolically guarding, watching, surveying the scene. And ordinarily, those angelic beings, they saw only the holy law of God. They saw only the the symbols of our and evidences of our rebellion and the failures of the people. But now, on this day, God invites something new to be added. Over the top of those symbols, blood sprinkled, evidence of life given, substituted, and the problem of evil the problem of sin, the problem of the people's rebellion, both figuratively and literally, is covered by the blood of that goat. Evil was not denied or dismissed as something purely philosophical or psychological. Injustices were not ignored, but rather God confronts and resolves the problem of our sin, the problem that faces each and every one of us with a way of atonement. The priest then was instructed to come back from the center of the temple tabernacle complex, and in each room, in the holy place, and then out in the outer court, he continued to sprinkle the blood in the same manner in order to thoroughly and extensively purify the polluting effects of sin throughout. I love... How the NIV translates verse number 16. It says that the uncleanness and rebellion, whatever sins had been, God had made a way of atonement. His wrath and his righteousness against sin was satisfied, whatever sins had been in the previous year. Another word that the New Testament uses for this is the word propitiation, that that with the sprinkling of blood, the, the substituted life of the sacrifice, God's wrath against sin is satisfied. And now it is possible for a holy God to live in intimate peace with an unholy people. I don't know how good you are at dealing with bad news or difficult interactions. I find that some of us go in all guns blazing, all full of emotion, and sometimes we can create more havoc than what there originally was. Perhaps others of us are on the other extreme, and we're masters of avoidance. We ignore the calls, we bury the bills, and that doesn't seem to help either because the turmoil just mounts up. Here we have God in perfect balance, stepping in and acting decisively to deal with sin, but acting mercifully, showing his profound love and mercy, wanting to spare the people who were guilty, but yet dealing truly and righteously in justice with sin, providing a way in which sin can be dealt with and the sinner spared. The New Testament picks up on all of this imagery and says not only that Jesus is our great high priest who carries out the atonement sacrifice 
for us. But he himself is the atoning sacrifice. And not only that, he is also the place, like the mercy seat, like the atonement cover, where the atonement sacrifice occurs. He is the priest. He is the true sacrifice. He is the covering where God's mercy and God's justice comes together. Everything we need for God's forgiveness, for the removal of God's anger against us, everything we need to be welcomed into God's presence is offered to us in Jesus Christ. Everything. All of this symbolism found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ and his cross. So let me ask you this evening, have you come to Jesus Christ for forgiveness? God has done everything to avoid what happened to Aaron's two sons where they took the burden of their sin and their wickedness on themselves and paid the ultimate price. God has done everything in providing his son as our great high priest, as the atoning sacrifice, as the place where atonement is made so that we don't have to deal with what our sins deserve. We cannot save ourselves. That's why we have sung tonight, Who, O Lord, could save themselves, their own soul to heal? Our shame was deeper than the sea, Your grace is deeper still. You alone can rescue. You alone can save. You alone can lift us from the grave. We can only come to Jesus to deal with the issue of evil and our sin. Perhaps tonight, Christian, you have come to Jesus. How much greater is Jesus Christ than what we've been reading about and considering in Leviticus chapter 16? Did you notice in the reading how many times it's emphasized that Aaron has to make a sacrifice for himself? It's seven different times it refers to him having to bring his own sacrifice to cleanse himself before he can do anything for anybody else. How much greater, how much more amazing is what Jesus Christ has done the perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice, the place of atonement. Of course, surely we join in the last line of that hymn when we say, you alone, to you alone belongs the highest praise. The first goat, therefore, shows us the the means, if you like, the the way that atonement, the the way that it can be accomplished, that the detail of our salvation has been worked out and accomplished by God through Jesus Christ. Secondly then, the result of atonement, complete banishment of sin. Having come back out from the center of the tabernacle complex, the high priest Uh, was then instructed to take the second goat that was chosen to be the scapegoat as part of the sin offering. And as we've read, the text says, And Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it. Both hands 
Another unique feature of this day that we don't read about in any of the other sacrifices. No doubt emphasizing the the intensity and the the fullness and completeness of the transfer of the, the people's sin and guilt that was going to be confessed over this solitary goat. In fact, the, the instructions that, that God gives are, are comprehensive. It says, all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, shall be put and confessed onto this goat. And then it's taken by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. It's hard to read this if you know Isaiah chapter 53 and not think that that's what Isaiah had echoing in his mind when he wrote of Christ, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Tradition says there was quite a commotion in the camp or with the people as this goat began its journey from the very center of the camp in the tabernacle, front court, out to the solitary place in the wilderness. And tradition also tells us that the goat was eventually thrown off a cliff to prevent it from returning to bring back the sins that were placed on it. What a, what a picture. It, it's a, just a perfect picture that demonstrates the effectiveness of what goat one accomplished, what this sprinkled blood on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies has actually done. It's taken the sin, it's taken the iniquity, it's taken the transgression, all the words that are used, it's taken all of it and taken it away to the most remote place. Now, I'm conscious that we here in Northern Ireland, we're not wilderness people. So I wondered if, as island people, the equivalent picture is taken from Micah chapter 7, when he says of the Lord, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. I think we can all imagine that, can't we? I wonder if you still hold on to the weight of guilt of sin. Or do you embrace the freedom that God in Jesus Christ has won for you? I wonder if the bitterness and resentment to other people, pride and superiority, selfish ambition, these sins have become more and more apparent to you and perhaps even as you've taken steps in the Christian faith it's come with it an even greater sense of guilt. I need to hold on, we can sometimes think, to, to guilt to, to show that we take sin seriously. But imagine the, the record of sin that is against you. Imagine that it's taken and we, we take it out into the heart of the Atlantic Ocean and we, we take that, that script of sin and of guilt and we drop it down into the ocean and it's never to return again. That's what the picture was for the scapegoat to go out into the wilderness, never to be brought back against them again. 
Eventually, it's going to become impossible to to both enjoy the atonement that Jesus offers and to carry the weight of guilt around. Because the result of what Christ has done is to take that sin and that guilt away for it never to be brought up against you. So stop beating yourself up about failures. Get on with the new week that Jesus Christ has won for you, the opportunity to enjoy him and to serve him afresh. Atonement has accomplished the complete banishment of our sin. One more thing we've been trying to do as we have tracked through these different feasts and try and follow the yearly program that God instituted for the Old Testament people is to sort of connect each one with the bigger gospel story, the chronologically revealed in history and in the New Testament. I find it really hard with this <laughs> feast how to do that. So I'm going to have to um, name my source, uh, David Gooding, in his um, commentary to Hebrews chapter 9, I think really helpfully connects the ritual of this day and particularly what happens with the second uh, goat with what the writer to the Hebrew says in uh, chapter 9, verse 24 and 28. If you think about what's the movement of Aaron and the high priest on the Day of Atonement, he, he's made three significant displays. So he's first come out and taken that first goat and appeared before the people, before the court, and he's killed the goat and catched the blood in the basin. But then secondly, he's made an appearing in the holiest of all. He's come back into the heart of the tabernacle, and there he appears a second time, but now before the divine throne, the divine presence. And he presents the blood sprinkled before God. And now thirdly, he's come back out before the people again to go through the final part of the sacrifice for sin, the ritual of the scapegoat. Now, just listen to what the writer to the Hebrews observes when talking about what Christ has done as superior to what the high priest could do on the Day of Atonement. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so Christ, having been offered once to, to bear the sin of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Did you notice the writer to the Hebrews mentions three different appearings, similar to the three different appearings that the high priest would have made? Firstly, Christ appeared at the end of the age, as the writer uses the language, he appeared on the cross to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and that will never be repeated. Secondly, he now appears before God. In the presence of God, he is gone as our forerunner, as the resurrected firstfruits, like we thought about earlier in this series, as our advocate, our great high priest, where he has secured a righteous and proper standing for us. And then the writer says, his third appearing is still to come. 
But unlike the high priest, he's not going to come back to make another sacrifice for sin. What the high priest did with the scapegoat, Christ has already done the first time he came. This time he's just coming to take those who are his to be with him. And that writer says, we eagerly wait for him. We don't wait suspicious of what the result is going to be, concerned about whether he's got on okay up there as he's appeared before God. We eagerly wait the consummation when we are united with our priest, our sacrifice, our place of atonement, Jesus Christ. The final paragraph of the chapter shows that the Old Testament ritual had such inherent weakness. Not only did the priest continually have to be reminded to sacrifice for himself, but you start to see at the end of this chapter that the whole ritual of atonement that was made in the Old Testament is already having to be planned to be done year after year after year. In fact, four times over, the Lord tells Moses, this is going to be an institution done forever, which sounds really long and really repetitive. As soon as the day is over, you get this sense that the burden of sinfulness would start to build again when another day would have to be gone through 365 days later. Obviously, it's not so for us with Christ. The perfect sacrifice was once for all, permanently and forever completed. Our salvation is done. God's put his name to it. Now we just eagerly wait for its consummation. As we conclude and finish, I want us just to step back and just think about this day in the wider context of who Israel was and what they were here for. We go back and remember that God took this extended family of Abraham from slaves to Egypt. He made them a nation and he said, you are going to be my treasured possession. He gave them an identity. But he also said, you're going to be a kingdom of priests to the nations around. As a nation, they were going to showcase to the world who God is and what he is like. And I don't think there is an example uh, more principally of that than their institution of the Day of Atonement. To show that it is possible to be accepted by the holy, living God. To show them that sin can be dealt with. That the God they worship is true and living. And so too here we today. We're called again, aren't we, to be a kingdom of priests. God among us. To show to a watching world a needy world, a desperate world, that God has a way to deal with sin and wickedness and yet preserve and save the sinner. What a message we have to share. The Day of Atonement, we have the greater fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And as a kingdom of priests, we can minister to those around us, our friends and our families, with this good news of a full atonement available through Jesus Christ. We're going to sing one more hymn, so I'm going to hand back over to Nick. Thank you, Tim.
We're going to stand together again and sing as our closing hymn before the throne of God above, number 42. After that, Tim will close in prayer. Uh, and you're welcome to stay for tea and coffee after the service, as always. Uh, closing prayer. Heavenly Father, we do praise you for the wonder of the truth we've been able to sing and declare uh, with our mouths and consider from your word this evening. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. So we do pray that you'll help us to be a beacon of hope uh, with this message of truth uh, in the city of Belfast. So we commit ourselves to you now for safekeeping. We pray that you're blessing upon the refreshments that are provided as we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' precious name.